0: I'm spending the next few minutes of WGTD's morning show with Steve Phillips who is a columnist for The Nation and The Guardian and the author of a really interesting book before this called Brown is the New White and a new book called How We Win the Civil War, Securing a Multiracial Democracy and Ending White Supremacy for Good. The wording of that title is no accident it is the contention of Steve Phillips, and he is not alone in saying it, is that in many respects we are still waging, still fighting the Civil War that, of course, officially only took place and officially ended back in 1865. But in the minds of many, uh, that war has never ended, and that there are those who still fervently and ardently believe uh, in the causes of, of the Confederacy and are at work against uh, on those causes uh, to this very day. And that's one of the things that he explores uh, in his really interesting book. And I'm really glad that we have Steve Phillips um, with us for the next few minutes to talk about his book, again titled How We Win the Civil War, Securing a Multiracial Democracy and Ending White Supremacy for Good. Steve Phillips, we welcome you to The Morning Show.
1: Thanks for having me. We're really glad to be here.
0: Uh, Before we get into the book, I want to give you an opportunity to talk about an organization that you uh, helped to create called Democracy in Color. I think it touches uh, very directly on many of the issues that you raise uh, in your book. So tell us briefly about Democracy in Color.
1: So Democracy in Color is a a media organization that provides information and analysis with a color-conscious uh, perspective. Right. We have a podcast uh, on Dr. Color with Steve Phillips, we a color conscious podcast about politics. We have a weekly newsletter which is a roundup of information and things we're reading and analysis about uh, the changing demographics in the country and how they're playing themselves out in US politics. Um, and we do different reports periodically about U.S. politics from a very uh, race-conscious lens. We did an analysis of the spending of the Democratic super PACs in 2020, that type of a thing. So, but the core uh, uh, products we put out into the world are our biweekly podcast and our weekly newsletter.
0: I'm really glad that you uh, used the turn of phrase that you did because it prompts a, a question that I'm not sure I would have thought to ask. When we hear from certain people uh, on, on the right, When it comes to some of these issues, they will lodge the charge that those on the left are actually overly preoccupied with matters of race. And they will sometimes even go so far as to uh, accuse the other side of racism or maybe racism in reverse by being so preoccupied or as you yourself use the phrase, color conscious. Uh, how would you respond to those uh, concerns or charges? Uh, 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 and, and do you see any potential pitfalls in being uh, color conscious as you are grappling with very, various issues?
1: No, not at all. That, uh, the introduction to the, my current book is titled Choice Between Democracy and Whiteness. And uh, it's a phrase that the uh, historian Taylor Branch used in describing uh, the rise of white domestic terrorism under Trump. And he was talking about how people would not stand for being a minority in their own country. The question is, given a choice between democracy and whiteness, how many would choose whiteness? And that's exactly what transpired on January 6th, uh, 2021 whereas that all 50 governors of the state of the uh, uh, every state in this country had said that the election was over and certified the results and the results were that uh, joe biden had won that's democracy and then you had people carrying the confederate flag wearing sweatshirts saying maga civil war january 6, is <clears throat> january 6 2021 storming the united states capitol and so and hurling racist epithets at the uh, many of the black police officers who were trying to defend the capital, And so this struggle over whether this is fundamentally a white country or whether or not this is a multiracial country continues to this day. And if you look at the challenge that we face in this country, most fundamentally the uh, you know, profound gargantuan racial wealth gap where the average white family has uh, more than uh, ten times the assets of the average Black and Latino family, and everything that flows from that—in you know, terms of housing, and education, and, uh, and job opportunities, et cetera—that's all quite racialized within this country. And so we have profound racial inequality. And my first book, *Brown's New White*, I talk about why do white people have all the money, And that if you Look basically at, yeah, they came to this country, took the country, brought people over here to work the country and create its wealth, and then took it and kept it for themselves. That's the origins of the contemporary racial wealth gap we have. So if we're going to have a society of equality and justice and uh, the values that you know we like to uh, espouse rhetorically, we have to grapple with the profound racial inequality, which is racial and economic inequality, which is, government created and protected and extended we've only had non-legal uh racism and discrimination has only been illegal in this country since 1965 1964 the civil rights act and the voting rights act prior to that it was perfectly legal to discriminate in hiring and jobs in all of these different areas until the civil rights act of 64 was passed was the year i was born so we are dealing with these issues, and you can't then walk into a situation of such profound inequalities that we're not going to talk about it. Right, I was going to say per- perpetuates.
0: It. It's it's uh, and it's easy to say let's not talk about race uh, when when you are white and living in the midst of a society in which so much of the power and so much of the wealth resides with you and other whites. Uh, it's it's one thing for somebody like that to say let's let's not talk about race. Uh, I think exactly. that's part of what you're saying.
1: Oh, 100 percent. That it, it it's it, it, we live in a society that there is profound uh, inequality that benefits white people that every white person inherits, and you're not going to change it unless you talk about it. But those who don't want it to change don't want it to be talked about. So that's actually not a very surprising thing at all. And that's part of what you know. I see my mission as is trying to get this word out into the world, get people to face these realities and then point a path to
0: how we change them. I'm speaking with Steve Phillips, uh, author of How We Win the Civil War. I want to take a moment to talk about the really interesting author's note at the front of your book in which you uh, – you talk first about the the choice of when you refer to someone by a, a first name versus referring to them by their last name, and kind of the different sort of gesture of of respect which you know one choice versus versus the other might 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 represent, and then a really interesting uh, point where you talk about the matter of capitalizing the word blacks versus the word whites. Let's talk with, about the first. I thought this was really quite interesting, first names and last names, and it says so much about thinking about respect with others. Can you just quickly uh, tell our listeners what, what I'm talking about here?
1: Yeah, it, traditionally, it, it, particularly with people of color, particularly women of color, particularly, most strictly African-American women, and actually Martin Luther King references this in his uh, um, letter from a Birmingham jail. About people are not accorded the respect of being called, you know, Mister or Ms or by their last name, and and it's a form of disrespect historically, in terms of uh, how you talk, how people have been talked about to the people of color, and so I was very uh, sensitive to that, and I didn't want to perpetuate that reality in my book. At the same time, as I wanted people to feel a bond and a sense of affection with. The leaders, who particularly the ones who I know and have a close relationship with, people like Stacey Abrams, people like Tram Nguyen in Virginia, I wanted them to to bond with them, and so I I grappled with that, and and defaulted to using their first names where I use their first names because I want to try to uh, uh, convey my own sense of you know affection, understanding, belief for these people, and have the readers. Um, embrace that as well.
0: Hmm. There's an interesting conversation there as well that we would leave to our listeners uh, in which you talk about the choice to not capitalize the word whites, but capitalizing the word blacks. It's, it, it's an, a very, very interesting point, and I'm, I'm glad it's there. Really, It got, really got me thinking. Let's proceed, though, to kind of the heart and soul of the book in which you, uh, in effect, talk about what you call the Confederate battle plan. That is the strategy, uh, official or not, uh, that has been in place uh, from the early days after the end of the Civil War, which, of course, again, you're suggesting has not really ended uh, at all. Uh, I I found this uh, quite interesting, and, and one of the most uh, important tenets of, of of this so-called Confederate battle plan is what you call distorting public opinion— Sometimes we call that uh, you know efforts uh, towards disinformation, and you tell us that this is actually nothing new. That even in the early days after the Civil War, that there was a national disinformation campaign that was sophisticated, multidimensional, and far-reaching. Tell us a little more about that.
1: Yeah, very much so, and it continues. That uh, uh, campaign continues to this day, Um, and so there was an effort to. Uh, redefine what the Civil War was about and to sanitize what was in essence a vi- the most violent and bloody conflict in this country as an effort to con- do that would allow white people to continue to hold black people in chains and slavery. And so there was an effort to uh, re- change the marketing around what the Civil War actually was about. And this whole notion of the lost cause um, was uh, erected, and there was you know, books written, and then there was... Uh, and then that's what I think continues to this day. So the uh, Gone with the Wind is a core example of this. So Gone with the Wind is written by Margaret Mitchell, who was highly inspired uh, by the uh, uh, author of a book called The Klansman that was the basis for uh, the film uh, Birth of a Nation. And she basically transformed the Civil War, which is a war about preserving... Uh, slavery into this romanticized story of this, you know, dashing leading man and leading woman and, and that captured the imagination of people. As recently as 2018, Gone with the Wind is like the sixth most popular book within this country. And so that's a very successful effort to redefine and to distort public opinion around what the Civil War itself was. So that's all predicate to then having a the current Trump big lie around the twenty twenty election was stolen, et cetera, et cetera. But it shows the the duration and the tenacity of ways to change public opinion and it has been a consistent it has been a consistent part of the Confederate battle plan.
0: Very recently, by the way, I happened to hear uh, a recording of the remarks that Margaret Mitchell made at the uh, official opening of the film of Gone with the Wind. Uh, she was the last to speak after various cast members. And in her remarks to this cheering crowd in, I think, Atlanta, uh, she makes very specific reference to the Confederacy and to the something like the beauty of the Confederacy or something. And it really was kind of shocking to me. I would have thought that uh, any references to the Confederacy would have been sort of Veiled or or not not nearly so overt, but she uh, it it really underscored for me yes that there are at least certain Southerners who have a devotion for the Confederacy and for what the Confederacy stood for uh, that is uh, very very energetic and galvanized to this very day. In your book, you present in a sense a battle plan uh, in reverse uh, for those who would oppose. Uh, the tenets of a, this so-called Confederate battle plan. Uh, tell us what the heart and soul of your thoughts is in terms of what must be done to to uh, mount a uh, effective counterplan to this Confederate battle plan.
1: Right. So the the second half of the book are, is uh, case studies of how we win and how we have been winning, looking at places like Georgia... Uh, Virginia, Arizona, Harris County, Texas, and San Diego, and what they have done to be able to uh, make real progress in those areas that were former, uh, many of them former Confederate strongholds. And so it was interesting that there's very consistent elements of what has taken place in each of those um, areas, and that's what I call the Confederate battle plan in terms of strong leaders, civic engagement groups, detailed data-driven plans, and playing the long game. And the essence of it, I would say, is really is about expanding democracy and civic participation. Because the fundamental point being, this is what I tried to outlay in my, my first book, is that there is a new American majority within this country consisting of the overwhelming majority of people of color, what I call a meaningful minority of whites. That's the coalition that elected Obama and reelected Obama. People of color have gone from 12% of the population in the 60s to 40% today. And so the challenge is how do you translate that population majority into a electoral and political majority. And that's the fundamental uh, uh, imperative at this hour. And that's the core component um, of the liberation battle plan is to find the leaders and the groups and the people who have the plans to be able to get the population into the polls so that election results um, can be transformed. And that is how uh, uh, biden won georgia in a way that shocked him in the title of my georgia chapter is georgia that's not one we expected because biden that's what biden said on election night and that's the fundamental and you know it's the fundamental battle because the 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 conservatives are doing everything they can to suppress voting and to make it as hard as possible to participate because they understand the strategic significance of the uh, of, of galvanizing the electorate and that's the core um of
0: this battle plan piece and that's the core of how we in fact win you talk quite a lot in the book about uh, various success stories and you don't talk about anything as much as you talk about Georgia of course and we associate the name of Stacey Abrams with that success in Georgia but you tell us that success was not just about Stacey and uh, that's probably uh, one of the most important points that you're trying to make here uh, I mean it is about particular gifted people and the huge difference that they make, but what about that success story in Georgia uh, is is beyond Stacey Abrams uh, herself? What is the other takeaway from Georgia?
1: Yeah, no, I joked with Stacey um, when I uh, she called me in twenty twenty one after the new Senate had passed the COVID relief bill. And I, I said, "So you you, you took that ten thousand dollars we helped you raise, and you turned it into two trillion dollars to the American people." And she says, I'd like to provide return on investment. So the work that she did to transform the electorate, when I met Stacey 10 years ago, she said that, do we lose by 200,000 votes? There are a million and a half people of color who don't vote. I'm going to go register them to vote. And that is the work that led to uh, Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff getting elected to the Senate, flipping control of the entire United States Senate, the entire United States Congress. So anything that has come out of this Senate and Congress that people think is good, is due to the work that Stacey was doing for the past decade of transforming the electorate so that we could change who its leaders were in Congress, and that changed the whole balance of power in the entire country. Mm.
0: A last question. Both in the Confederate battle plan and in the counter plan, there is a tenet that is the same. Play the long game. Uh, What does that mean to you, playing the long game? It
1: means sticking with it. And so, in each of these places, I highlight leaders and groups who have been doing work to make change. And every single one of them, the same leaders and same groups have been at it for at least a decade. And they've stuck, at, they've stuck at that work around bringing people to the electorate, changing its composition, making in, sometimes often incremental gains, but tenacious and unrelenting. And so, it means having a 10 year mindset in terms of going about this work and sticking with it through the ups and downs. Playing that long game is what yields the results.
0: The book, again, is How We Win the Civil War, Securing a Multiracial Democracy and Ending White Supremacy for Good. The author, Steve Phillips. Steve Phillips, thank you so much for joining me today on The Morning Show to talk about your thought-provoking book and best wishes to you.
1: Thanks so much for having me.